Welcome to the Who's Left podcast, a show about Indiana politics, history, and culture from the unapologetic perspective of the Hoosier left. My name is Scott Aaron Rogers, and I'm recording from Bloomington. Today's topic. Sports. Specifically, college sports. Now, why is a leftist political podcast talking about sports? Good question. This show covers Indiana politics, history, and culture. And you can't talk about Indiana culture without including sports. And sports have a way of intersecting with politics and history. This state is the home of Notre Dame football. The Fighting Irish aren't named for a drunken ethnic stereotype. They literally scrapped in the streets against the Indiana KKK. I recently did an episode on toxic masculinity. This state was the home of Bob Knight, an avatar for the kind of domineering, abusive, authoritarian father figure held up as a model by the religious right. High school basketball in Indiana defines the state to such an extent, our love of the game is the only thing many outsiders know about us Hoosiers. Ten of the twelve largest high school gyms in the U.S. are located in Indiana. Now, why college sports specifically? I've been chewing on the topic for a while. This November, IU fired head football coach Tom Allen, the second highest paid uh, state employee in Indiana, requiring the university to buy out the remainder of the play caller's contract for a handsome $15.5 million. Recent realignment saw the Big Ten Conference, home to IU and Purdue's athletics programs, expand to 18 teams with the addition of the University of Southern California, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington. In addition to sending Big Ten student-athletes from locations coast-to-coast for competition during the academic calendar, this move precipitated the dissolution of the Pacific 12 Conference, an association with a history dating to 1915. The football champions of the two conferences have historically played in the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day. This latest round of conference realignment follows a series of such moves over the last 40 years, each sacrificing a bit more of the collegiate game's alleged purity for dollars. The National Collegiate Athletics Administration, or NCAA, calls Indianapolis home. The organization, which oversees college sports at all levels, moved to the state capital from suburban Kansas City in 1999, their headquarters anchoring White River State Park and employing over 500 Hoosiers. The Circle City has hosted more Final Fours, college basketball's national championship, than any other locale in the modern era. But most of all, college sports serve as a window into late capitalist, neoliberal American society at large. The cancer of financialization burrowing into every aspect of the university, from the stadium to the lecture hall. I invited one of the most informed sports fans I know, my friend Alexa Scott, back to the pod to talk about this uniquely American institution, the big business of college sports. But first, let's talk about a minuscule business, this podcast. Do you appreciate whatever this is I do here at Who's Left? If so, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you use Apple Podcasts or another such platform where you can leave a rating and write a review, please do so. Engagement like that boosts visibility and really helps the algorithm find like-minded people and hopefully persuadable others. If you're in a position to financially support the program, the best way to do so is by subscribing at the paid level over at scotteronrogers.substack.com. While you're there, you can find my essays, campaign finance research, and past episodes of the show. You can also find me on Facebook, the platform I still refuse to call anything but Twitter, as well as Instagram and threads, at scottrodge78, that's S-C-O-T. 
TTROG78. And I'm all, uh, also now on Mastodon at the same handle at Hoosier.social. As good as a monetary contribution is a recommendation. Please share with friends, family, and strangers alike. 2024 is going to be an incredibly trying and confusing year with right-wing authoritarian forces backed by powerful moneyed interests and hostile foreign governments attacking democracy in Indiana, America, and worldwide by flooding our information spaces with bullshit. I will be here all year, wading through the bullshit, helping to sort fact from falsehood. Let's build a community committed to pulling Indiana out of its right-wing stupor and maybe have a laugh along the way. Thank you for your support. Now, my interview with Alexa Scott. Alexa Scott, welcome back to the Who's Left podcast. Glad to be back. So, watching the national championship football game the other night. You got Washington, you got Michigan, two big state schools, uh, 25 million viewers watching this thing. Coaches are all millionaires, right? Everybody's making money. It's a great time. The more I watch sports, particularly college sports, and I wrote a little bit about this last year around Super Bowl time. I don't know. It like the older I get, the more it feels gross. Um, especially the, the exploitation in college sports. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Do you, do you not think it's a little better now that this NIL perhaps more of like a momentum towards like uh, paying players like actual salaries? You know what? I do. I do think in that regard, things have improved and uh, I've got a lot of the great stats and uh, quotes mm -hmm. uh, as far as NIL. And, um, you know, I think I, I want to work toward that. But, um, you know what I'm saying, though? Like these e even even in the NFL where people are playing. You know, th these guys are, are sacrificing their bodies and it's making a lot of people money. And the college students certainly aren't making anywhere near what they're bringing in. And you could argue that, like, pro football players are, aren't getting no. compensation either, yeah. you know, if you, if you look at it. But, um, you know, at least we're talking about grown-ass yeah, legal contracts here yeah. and, and union representation. So... Um, you, you feel me? You feel me? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's it's always been, I've been a big fan of college sports for a long time now, but it's always been sort of like a moral compromise I've had to make mm -hmm. the whole climbing. Like, you know, well, it's not right, but, you know, I'm having fun, so let's not think about it. You, um, you know what? Isn't that like the essence of <laughs> uh, America in the neoliberal era, right? This is, this yeah. is the, this is the America Reagan wanted. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's just, it's just, it's, you have to, uh, I don't, I don't want to like, it's issue all of my like responsibility as a citizen, but you just kind of have to like pick and choose at times or you'll just, you'll enjoy nothing because it's all under the same umbrella. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's true. It's, it's, it's escapism, you know, it's, it's the circus brought to you by bread. Um, and yeah, yeah, you do. You just have to sort of look away. And, and and look, I'm as guilty as anybody. I watched that game. Um, but yeah, it is it, college sports, especially, is a is a unique cultural phenomenon that we only have in America, and we yeah. can't have anywhere else. Um, I, I I looked up some some stuff. So according to uh, an article on the PBS website, quote. Division One athletics generated $15.8 billion in revenues in 2019, according to uh, the NCAA. That's an end quote, and that's the stats directly from NCAA the last year <clears throat> they have data. It's a lot of damn money. It's a lot of money. So, lot like, of money. and it, it, it comes from several places, right? You got your uh, sponsorships. Um, licensing merchandise, you know, you got to get that that Nike or that Adidas swag, right? Branding, uh, ticket sales, obviously. Uh, and then you got your boosters and your donors, but most of all, we're talking about TV money here, right? 
TV contract. The, TV the, contract. The bulk, it's all about TV contracts. But yeah, the bulk of the money fueling college sports comes from TV. And um, especially now, as we enter the, the, the you know, full-on streaming era, when you can watch whatever you want, whenever you want, there's, like, very little appointment television anymore, right? And live sports is is it and that's why that you know you get billions and billions of dollars yeah. for this i mean like, i'm a millennial i don't watch live tv outside of live sports i mean i don't know how many people uh, below a certain age range uh really do these anymore uh and so i guess that leaves like a certain like um sort of like emphasis on live sports for like uh television providers and dnca knows this at least the the, the member con- the member conferences though for sure Sure, sure. Well, you know, and and uh, I'm glad you mentioned the the member conferences because they're essentially the ones uh, steering the ship <laughs> anymore. The the NCAA, which um, headquartered in Indianapolis, right? Where you know this is a this is a Hoosier show. We're not just dicking around. Proud, proud. <laughs> but but the NCAA and their their gleaming, beautiful facility overlooking the White River in downtown Indianapolis is a is a feckless organization and it's all a facade. The the real drivers here are the conferences. And uh I think this like requires a, a small history of like the monetization of collar sports real quick. Again, especially football, mm. because that's the real money driver. You know, basketball, some football most. So yeah. That's it what used to be. Yeah, it used to be back back in, you know, the good old days, you know, when you had the rabbit ears on your TV and there were only like three channels, right? Uh, the NCAA controlled which game singular was shown on TV every week. And as cable became a thing in the, the late 70s and early, early 80s, um, you know, all these channels needed some inventory. And um like <laughs> sports, right? Always draws eyeballs. So these TV networks, these cable networks, these upstarts, they they really, really, really want to just like throw money at at college sports. And and, and the NCAA is is solely in charge of everything. So early eighties, University of Georgia, University of Oklahoma sue the NCAA to get control of their own TV rights. And this thing goes all the way to Supreme Court. Uh, eventually decided in a case called uh, NCAA versus the Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma, 1984, Supreme Court says, hey, NCAA, you're acting as a cartel. And, and, and so this is when you start to get more college sports on TV. You know, the conferences are selling their packages uh, the NCAA essentially loses all their money. To this day, they they don't really get the football money. It, the, the NCAA makes their money on March Madness. Yeah, I mean, uh, officially, the Division One champion for 2023 is uh, South Dakota State, not the Michigan Wolverines. They are the college football playoff champion, which is a specifically a different entity. It's kind of a, it's a weird, complicated situation. Well, if you're, uh, I don't know if anybody pays attention to European soccer, but it's very much like when the Premier mm. League split off of, uh, like, the the football championship pyramid in England um, yeah. in, in, like, the early 90s. It's the same sort of thing. So we uh, we, we, might get, we, to, we might get another split, too, at some point. They're, like, 20 or 30 best, like, uh, best programs. And be like, why don't you... Ohio State should be like, why are we subsidizing Indiana? Why are we subsidizing Purdue? And I just like slid off and joined some new super league with the with uh, the SEC. But you know, that's yeah, that's, they're that's not they're not going to be nostalgic for our candy strike basketball warmups. It's going to come mm-hmm. down to cold hard cash. Absolutely. And yeah, the amount of cold hard cash we're talking about here is like some sixteen billion dollars a year. So, according to that same PBS article, of the $15.8 billion in revenues that went to the NCAA's Division I Athletics Enterprise in 2019, only $2.9 billion, that's 18.2%, was returned to athletes in the form of athletic scholarships and 1% on medical treatment and insurance protections. In contrast, 35% 
was spent on administrative and coach compensation and 18% on lavish facilities. And what goes to college athletes is distributed among men's and women's teams in many other Division I sports, such as track, lacrosse, field hockey, swimming, and wrestling, that do not generate the same revenues as football or men's basketball. A recent player-level analysis finds that the existing restrictions on paying college athletes effectively transfers resources away from students who are more likely to be black and more likely to come from poor neighborhoods toward students who are more likely to be white and come from higher-income neighborhoods, end quote, right? So this is young black kids. <laughs> Their uncompensated labor is largely fueling this entire endeavor that is college sports, right? Yes. Yes. Like, uh, it's, it, it's kind of gross and plantation-y when you zoom out and look at it that way. Yeah, no, while I don't think that, like, that is the inherent goal of some of these people, at least some of them, it is, like, it, it is what happens. It is, like, it is the end result of this, like, of this, like, exploitation of labor. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something we see in other, like, sectors, but it just... It just, you know, it, it it just looks so much worse given the history of uh <laughs> black athletes play, playing sports. Uh, yeah, and 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 so you know, it's not just like our our elected leaders are um you know looking over there and 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 and, and tisk tisking the entire operation, <clears throat> right? Like they're oh, sure. absolutely complicit. Uh, and the entire thing with like, uh, you know, trolling <laughs> university funding and, uh, um, 80% in 80% of states in this country, the highest paid state employee is a college head coach. Like, <clears throat> is that not insane? It's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's insane that there is a difference like state employees. I don't say that. Like it is, well, it, it I is mean, technically, <laughs> technically, <laughs> the part of the state retirement fund. Yeah, you know they, yes. they pay into it just like that. They, they get the same representation. I, it's yeah, if you want to split hairs, it's kind of iffy. But technically, they are state employees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's the first thing I thought when I saw that, like, like that kind of map of like highest paid state employee by state. I'm like, because, but because those aren't technically state employees, aren't they? Uh, yeah, yeah, the uh, the highest yeah. paid state employee yeah. in the state of Indiana is uh, Matt Painter, the head basketball coach at Purdue. Oh, is that Matt Painter now? Uh, uh, as an IU grad, it used to be it was like uh, Archie Miller for some time. <laughs> oh, we dropped the ball there. Yeah, well, you know, funny story about I don't know how funny it is. Uh, the university paid Archie Miller ten million dollars hey. to go away when they fired him, and. Uh, just as they had paid Tom Crean $4 million a few years before that and uh, paid fired football coach Tom Allen $15.5 million this past November uh, as a parting gift. Yeah. Um, those numbers were definitely like eye opening and like kind of, uh, it's kind of almost enraging to some degree. But I, I, whenever this comes up, I always like to bring up that these, for like coaching contracts, uh, those usually come from like the the mega donors that kind of like uh, the rich people who kind of like shepherd the program unofficially from the outside. Mm. They usually are the ones who uh, the university will pass pass around like the the little uh, like the little thing like the little dish you have at like church and like you uh, yeah, put your money yeah, into yes, it. Yes, yes, the uh, yeah. you know, the collection jar up in the luxury boxes yeah. at the stadium. Yeah. Yes, and that's and that's why you know. Uh, well, it's public it, so, you know, sponsorships, shared professor. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that's money that could be going to like real things, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, yeah. But at the at the very least, that's not coming directly from your tuition. That is at least coming from private donors. It's you know, it, it at least at least looks, looks a little bit. Oh, oh, but wait, there's more. Okay, so I'm gonna get to that in just a moment. Uh, I want to I want to sneak in one <laughs> quote um, from the Washington Poster as as we pour out uh, a drink for our friends down at Texas A and M who uh, <laughs> just recently paid their football coach Jimbo Fisher seventy uh, seventy seven million dollar buyout to go away like that guy's agent right there oh, yeah. fucking champ oh yeah Dude, uh, <laughs> the donor, I had like the you know 
the donors at Texas A&M are very proud about how much money that they're, they can waste on, on coaching contracts. Uh, so, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like, oil money, right. You get the other end of that oil money. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, you know, like, that might be fine down at Texas, but like, according to the post, uh, quote, uh, rising administrative and support staff pay, uh, is one of the biggest reasons otherwise profitable or self-sufficient athletic departments run deficits. Uh, according to a post review of thousands of pages of financial records from athletic departments at 48 schools in the five wealthiest conferences of college sports, in a decade, the non-coaching payrolls at the schools combined rose $454 million to $767 million, a 69% jump. So it's not just coaches. It's not just buyouts. Like, They've got a massive, massive undertaking here. These are like huge, essentially professional sports programs, right? It is not cheap to run a football program. Uh, no, and <laughs> it is. Well, it's, but, there's, a, there's a lot of there's a lot of money. There's a lot of money everywhere. <laughs> but but surely uh, people love football, right? It is a money making endeavor. You spend money to make money. Uh, well, to quote, oh, well, actually, you coach and college game day host Lee Corso, <laughs> not so fast, my friend, because in 2019, yeah. only 25 of the 130 FBS schools, and that's, you know, your top, top division, right? Only 25 of the 130 had positive net revenues, right? So a very small percentage of programs are actually breaking even or making money. Oh, uh, the median school at an $18.8 million deficit. And even like down at uh, lower levels, like, you know, you mentioned South Dakota State, you know, at the, the FCS, the second division level, or, uh, you know, the other division one schools that don't uh, have top level football, right? Even those programs are, are running debt like $14.5 million every year. So who covers that difference, right? Maybe a school like IU, yeah. Sponsors, <laughs> right? You got the Simons. You got you got Ned Fow down there with the with <clears throat> cock oil and whatnot, right? And, and and the RV guys up in Elkhart. That that might work here, but um, in other places, that money gets transferred over from the general fund, so taxpayers, or from student fees. Yeah, uh, it's. Uh... You, it's, you might wonder, why would, why would they do this? It seems like it is inherently illogical. And maybe it is. Uh, but the, their usual rationale goes along the lines of, even if we're not winning championships or we're not turning a profit per se, the, the, the notoriety, the fame, the prestige that comes with having a, a, a football program just in general is something that makes the president look good, makes the school look good, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's just a, it's a huge recruitment thing. And now, money-wise, I don't know if that always bears out. Like, I don't know if the enrollment you gain from having a football program uh, justifies having it in the first place, but that is at least the calculus they're trying. That Alexa, I remember I Alexa, had a, a class. Can, <laughs> you, can you put a price on school spirit? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, I kind of like my answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I, um, I would say my attachment to Indiana athletics played a big role in my eventual decision to attend the university. I'm not saying it's the only reason, but having my, like, all, pretty much everyone in my family had gone to the university. And it's just like that sort of just, like, fear you share with your friends and family is like intoxicating. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. It's yeah. it's like it's just like a sweet, sweet little taste of that us versus them thing that like oh, the yeah. Trumpist fascists are really into. Except like you know, a, a tame and sort of healthy uh, redirection of that energy. I mean, speak for yourself. I have a very unhealthy animus towards Purdue. But, uh... <laughs> College sports keeping people from doing fascism <laughs> since like eighteen ninety six, and. Okay, I, I I get it. Like I get the attachment, but like I don't know if if yeah. student fees need to be paid for like 
$500 million trading centers and like a sauna and like weight rooms that are better than like anything the Jacksonville Jaguars, like an NFL team could, could afford, you know, they got mini golf, they got laser tag, they got like yeah. top flight, you know, they got armor shops and shit. Right. Um, I read an article in the, uh, Fort Worth business press and, uh, they quote a guy, Gerald Gurdy, who is the uh, president of the Drake group. And he says, quote, this is all about pandering to the fantasies of 18-year-olds. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the mission of a university. What's probably next down the line is a floating river attraction. Why don't we have a roller coaster? It's embarrassing that we're even discussing this. End quote. Uh, agree. Disagree. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, like, it looks bad, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's especially whether, you know, but obviously it's like student-athlete only. Right. There's only like the athletes at that particular program. It's not even like so you kind of like paying for it as as like a student with your through your birth song, but like not actually being able to like enjoy the facilities that you enter they beat for the whole school. Um so I mean yeah, it's it's kinda of hard to justify. It, 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 you know, the way I think about like all the like the, the you know, the, the facilities and all the, 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 the stuff they use to like lure in the 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 you know, the top elite recruits and whatnot it, it's it's like when your boss throws you a pizza party instead of giving you a raise like okay don't get me wrong this stuff is great but like these guys could be getting a fair share oh, yeah. of those 16 billion dollars yes. in revenue uh that they're bringing in yes. right and and you you brought up a great term student athlete it's the ncaa's favorite mm -hmm. term uh they invented it it was not a thing until like the 1950s, mm. it's a complete contrivance. Um, so I, I guess, um, you know, the NCAA, like it is again, it used to be a completely, uh, you know, feckless, empty facade of an organization until you get a guy called Walter Bauer uh, in there, or sorry, Walter Byers in there in the 1950s. And, you know, to, to clamp down on things after the point shaving scandal at to CCNY and at Kentucky. Uh, and, and a football scandal, William and Mary, right? This guy comes in to kick ass and he's like, all right, no more of this, you know, gambling, no more of these under the table payments and ringers and sham classes and grade fixing and all that stuff that was prevalent in college sports, like it, from the beginning, right? And he cracks down and, 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 and invents the uh, amateur model of college sports that has persisted to this day. Uh, but really, it's to avoid liability or it's to avoid paying these kids. Uh, here's a quote from The Atlantic. Quote, the term student-athlete was deliberately ambiguous. College players were not students at play, which might understate their athletic obligations, nor were they just athletes in college, which might have played like, uh, were professionals. That they were high-performance athletes meant they could be forgiven for not meeting the academic standards of their peers, that they were students meant they did not have to be compensated, ever, for anything more than the cost of their studies. Student-athlete became the NCAA's signature term, repeated constantly in and out of courtrooms. And you've seen, you've seen the squishy, you know, feel-good commercials when you watch a college, <laughs> you know, event, right? You know, it's all, it's the student what makes you all misty, right? X, X percent of athletes go pro in something other than sports. Yeah, exactly. Look, Kyle Hornsby is a, a heart yeah. surgeon, Alexa. How is the NCAA <laughs> not the most beneficent thing that has ever existed? You know, how could you argue? <laughs> uh, that's, that's, you know, that's what the kids call anecdotal evidence, right? Yeah. Uh, they, they like to put up this lovely front. And every time they're confronted in court, you know, they hide behind the student-athlete label. But uh, yeah, lately, they've been having a lot harder time hiding, right? Uh, do you remember, uh, well, you're probably too young to remember Ed O'Bannon. Do you know who Ed O'Bannon is, star of the 1995 uh, UCLA Men's National Championship team? Well, I know him for something. I only know him for his name from this court case you about to mention. I don't remember. I'm too young to remember that. <laughs> I am the, old uh, enough to remember watching player. him play. He, he, yeah. was, he, was a, he was a bad end. Said Obama was a hell of a player. His brother Charles 
was on that same team. They always show the the, the, the Tyus Edney running down the floor, makes the last second layup against Missouri. I, I vividly remember busting my bracket that year. But um, Ed O'Bannon was also featured on the cover of like the NCAA college sport or, you know, college basketball hey. video game one year without even knowing he was going to be featured in the cover one year. Like, no compensation, you know, for his name, image, and likeness. Nothing. So he and a bunch of other um, former student athletes uh, sued. And this case made it up to the Supreme Court. And uh, in 2014, NCAA versus, uh, oh, sorry, O'Bannon versus the NCAA uh, was decided. And so what, what happened is the Supreme Court sort of gave the NCAA a slap on the wrist. And, and, and so they, they opened up uh, additional benefits to players like, uh, you know, education-related things like, oh, okay, you know, you could buy a guy a, a, a computer or a desk or uh, a, a plane tickets to go study in Europe for a semester, right? But, but not cash payments. Okay, still illegal, right? Never. All Never. right. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Oh, sorry, Supreme Court. Look here, here. How about this? Will this make you feel better? Uh, turns out no. Right? College athletes continue to push. You know, college athletes and their allies continue to mention the disparities. So, in 2019, the state of California passes the Fair Pay to Play Act, which would allow college athletes in that state to um, profit off their own name, image, and likeness, right? Sell a, uh, a jersey with a kid's name on it, they get a cut, right? You know, you charge for autographs, you get a cut. Want to trade memorabilia for tattoos? Hey, you know, right? That's fine. So in response to that, other states are, for fear of getting left behind, right? The rich alumni... <laughs> The, the 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 politicians, you know, in Austin, Texas, or whatever, are like, holy shit, those Californians are going to get all the best players. We have to do this in our state too. Yeah. So you have um, image, image and likeness now, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah, the NCAA had a process where they just kind of like buried their head in the sand about this. What was probably going to happen someday, anyways? Uh, the passage of name, image, likeness rights. Uh, but they were just they were hoping that the Congress would eventually pass a law about it and be like, hey, there's now a, 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 a national standard. Instead, they did nothing. And one by one, states started passing these bills to allow it to happen. And the NCAA uh, was caught their pants down. Uh, and they're still trying to figure out exactly how to regulate it. Yeah. Rick, you know. oh. yeah. <laughs> okay, but so, so look, the, the NIL is still like a half measure, though. Right, because oh, sure. the 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 money's not coming from the schools directly, you know. It's coming no. from boosters or sponsors, uh, you know, commercials, appearance fees, whatever. So the schools still don't have to admit that, say, the student athletes are employees. Right, the entire model is kind of kind of broken. And it continues to be litigated. In 2021, uh, the NCAA versus Alston blew up any credibility the NCAA had. And first, before kicking it up to the Supreme Court, Ninth Circuit Court uh, Judge uh, Mylon Smith wrote, quote, The treatment of student-athletes is not the result of free market competition. To the contrary. It is the result of a cartel of buyers acting in concert to artificially depress the price that sellers could otherwise receive for their services. Our antitrust laws were originally meant to prohibit exactly this sort of distortion. So, uh, you want to guess how that thing came down at Supreme Court? Like, how do you think that, you know, this is 2021, conservative Supreme Court. How do you think they decided? <laughs> you know, you know, the, the world we live in now is so, uh... It's so, it's so polarized, right? Surely all the conservatives would vote one way and all the liberal justices would vote different, right? Why? Is that what's going to happen? This is a nine-nothing decision <laughs> with the um, 
with the 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 most stinging rebuke coming from Brett Kavanaugh, who wrote, quote, Nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sports should be any different. End quote. Now, I think it's amusing that Brett Kavanaugh subtly cares about antitrust law, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> He continues, the NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. Yeah. And he, he gives a great example, quote, all of the restaurants in a region cannot come together to cut cooks' wages on the theory that customers prefer to eat food from low-paid cooks. Law firms cannot conspire to cabin lawyers' salaries in the name of providing legal services out of the love of the law. Hospitals cannot agree to cap nurses' income in order to create a purer form of helping the sick. News organizations cannot join forces to curtail pay to reporters to preserve a tradition of public-minded journalism. Movie studios cannot collude to slash benefits to camera crews to kindle a spirit of amateurism in Hollywood. End quote. Like, bird. It is, um, you can't get the left and the right agree on anything but if there's if there's if there's one person we all hate it's not even COVID. it's not even it's not we can't even agree on COVID. but we could all come together to agree to hate the ncaa and that's 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 kind of magical in some way you know i it's unfortunate in a way because uh, i feel like the ncaa makes a great straw man for like bureaucracy in general and as like <laughs> As someone on the left who believes in government and a good, well-functioning bureaucracy and, you know, run by by competent oh, yeah. experts with resources, like, I want things like the NCAA to succeed, but my God, man, they suck. Oh, yeah. I think there are, like, if conservatives are just, like, there's, like, a sort of mind of thinking, it's just like, oh, we let it... It's the free market let the conferences decide and that's the true way to the, that's the that's the way of the future that seems uh kind of troubling that's something that i think they actually would go for as like a political like uh like argument yeah well you know what my favorite my favorite part of the kavanaugh's uh response is is is, is this quote like he go like full comrade here comrade brett kavanaugh quote uh Schools and student-athletes could potentially engage in collective bargaining, or it seeks some other negotiated agreement, to provide student-athletes a fairer share of the revenues that they generate for their colleges, akin to how professional football and basketball players have negotiated for a share of league revenues. End quote. Um, that sounds like a union, bro. Like, that is is Brett Kavanaugh advocating for... The college athletes to be employees with union representation. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it. Uh, my, my only quibble is instead of like a share of the profits, they can just get profit. Uh, but that's, that's just my opinion. Well, I mean, yeah, they're they're supporting a lot of useless, <laughs> uh, um, you know, assistant, you know, assistant, assistant to the assistant video coordinator, right? Or, uh, oh, you sure. know, uh, yeah, administrator I mean, for you know, compliance a... to make sure the administrator for compliance is complying. There's a lot of, like, hard-working 60-hour-a-week coaches and assistants. Yeah, I'd also like to see them get the money, too. I just, I think it's the people who are actually, like, providing the labor uh, on and off the field who should, who should get the money and not the, uh, you know, the rich people in front of the universities. I don't, yeah, I don't see the Ivy League's football kind of track bringing in the big box, right? No. Yeah, it's not for, like, love of tea. We're talking about high-level, essentially professional athletes. Look, th they have plenty of things they could bargain over, right? Like, the amount of control coaches and athletic programs have over these athletes is, like, insane. And, like, not even... It for the scholarship athletes, right? Like, if you want to say, okay, well, you know, the scholarship athletes are compensated in the form of free education or whatever, right? Well, even the walk-ons have to submit to, like, 
every aspect of their lives being run by their coach. I mean, we're talking 60-hour weeks for some of these kids, and that's just football-related stuff, right? Um, in addition to their their academics, which is supposed to be the reason they're in college in the first place, right? But, you know, their, their, their class schedule fits around their athletic schedule. Uh, not the other way around. Like so, like these kids do weight checks every day. You got hydration checks. You you got people uh, uh, calling you in class, say, "Hey, take a picture, prove to me you're there." Um, you know, if you're traveling with the team, you can't meet a friend for coffee in the town you're staying in. They've got uh, summer workouts that are technically voluntary, but if you don't show up, you know, you're not going to play. Hey, you invited? Yeah, you want to make the team? Yeah. Things like travel, compliance meetings, promotional appearances don't count toward uh, the limits on, like, countable athletically related activities, right? Like, the NCAA has rules of how much time you could be spending on the field practicing versus how much time you're in class or whatever. But all that other stuff doesn't count, right? Players with even representation could bargain over those things. <laughs> So there have been hints at this, right? Like there have been hints at player unionization. Um, this is from Jacobin Magazine. Quote, in 2014, the National Labor Relations Board in Chicago ruled that football players at Northwestern University were employees that could unionize. The NCAA appealed the ruling and the NLRB ultimately rejected the athlete's petition while sidestepping the compensation issue. Unquote. But... By 2017, the memo continues, uh, sorry, the 2017 memo says, quote, scholarship football players in Division I football bowl subdivision private sector colleges and universities are employees under the National Labor Relations Act. So that is the Obama era NLRB, mm. right? Says, yes, um, scholarship football players at private schools are employees, okay? Because of union laws and things like that at for state employees, right? State schools were not subject to this ruling. Which it turned out didn't matter because Trump's NLRB turned right around and rescinded the entire thing, right? Shocker. But in 2021, quote, NLRB general counsel Jennifer Abruzzo issued a memorandum asserting that athletes at private universities are employees with the right to negotiate and unionize. The updated guidance also states that it's illegal for schools to retaliate against athletes who organize and that institutions could be targeted by the NLRB if they continue to use the term student-athlete, end quote. And while that ruling, like the previous one, only apprised private schools, the memo does go on to further state, quote, similarly situated players at academic uh, institutions, unquote, anywhere, right, are also employees. This yeah, that definitely seems potentially to be, could be a big deal. Like yeah. A, yeah, definitely seems to be like a turning of the tide. Well, I mean, it, it's been taking away for some time, I think, but I, I think people in general have are coming to, around to the idea that uh, these are obviously like, uh, Laborers, people working for playing for these uh, for these teams, they deserve to be compensated. Thusly, uh, I, I think thankfully we as a society have come around, or at least beginning to come around to this. Uh, and that's been enlightening. I mean, uh, that's been heartening to see. Well, yeah, yeah. I think it's like every time there's another round of this like conference realignment in 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 college sports, it kind of shed the spotlight <laughs> yes. on this entire thing because you know you've got you've you've got you know, the women's softball team flying cross-country on a Tuesday to play on the West Coast with some of these, like, bloated conferences now. Like, I know it became unfashionable to joke about the Big Ten not having ten teams in, like, 1996, but, like, <laughs> you know, there's going to be 18 next year, including uh, Oregon. Like, yes, you, you can't escape Big Ten country if you try. I am now probably fat and... Uh... Big Ten country, I will routinely be able to see Indiana athletics participate here in the Pacific Northwest, at least on a bilingual basis. And is that worth the destruction of college sports as we know it? Who could say? 
but you know, uh, you know, it's it's one thing for like football teams to do this because you know you do it once a week. And, uh, like if you're it, the, the uh, Cal at Stanford, new members of the Atlantic Coast Conference, they have that thing oh, like what right? four four East Coast teams next year. So that's like doable, I think. But it's gonna really hurt if you're like a softball player, if you are a track athlete, if you are any of these other sports that do not have like the convenient, like limited schedule of like a football team. Yeah, you want to fly uh, and it's the football team who... Eugene to Piscataway on a Thursday? Like, no, it's no impossible. one does ever. The idea that this is like that it was ever about academics is becoming even more laughably like absurd. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, no, and I mean, look, it. We always kind of knew it was sort of gross, but the more money that pours in, right, the more college sports sort of get away from the like regional rivalries from like when when you hopped on a train. To go to a game, you know, that's what these conferences were. Yeah, now it is just as a shameless money grab. And you said it, it's the ruination of college sports and it dovetails completely with like the neoliberal era and, and, and Reaganism and, and the, the, the monetization of everything. And that, you know, that idiom taking over the whole country, right? Here's yeah. The thing about I, I just want to get into this real quick. The, the structure of the Pac-12 is that it's going to kill like these like century-old uh, like rivalries. And who, who loses? The fans lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, I think the sport itself, if, even if you're not a fan of one of these schools, uh, is going to is going to hurt in the years to come. The only people who benefit. Of the people who run the universities, and they will only benefit in the short term, because that is how the capitalist mindset like forces you to act. Yes, 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 yes. Fuck, fuck everything. Fuck history. Fuck planning. You know, I, I'm, I'm worried about next quarter's numbers, Bill. It, I need to show yes, a profit. We, I need to show growth. We all, we all lose, except for a few people, and even then, I don't know who's to say how much they really have in the long run, anyways. You know the um. The prolific author Cory Doctorow invented the term enshittification, and I think it sums up um, w- what's happening to college sports uh, in and, and college in general very nicely, right? Because um, the the financialization of the university doesn't stop at the stadium, right? It doesn't stop at the arena. It goes to the the administrative offices, right? It goes, it goes to the dorm rooms. It goes everywhere, right? Uh, here's a great, here's a great bit from the Chronicle of Higher Education. Well, capitalist production had entered a new phase. Many collective members argued, where the generation of knowledge and the production of knowledge workers have replaced the manufacturing of physical commodities as the driver of the economy. In this new cognitive capitalism. Control of the university in material as well as ideological terms would become as crucial and contested as control of the factory floor had been to the earlier labor movement, end quote. And, you know, I don't know if you pay attention to what's what's been happening recently with the president of Harvard and Penn and MIT <laughs> getting dragged into Congress about some trumped yes. up shit about anti-Semitism on campus, like... Do you know the name Christopher Rufo? I actually do not. Okay, this dangerous little fascist fuck uh, works out of Florida. He's like a former, uh, you know, uh, scholar or whatever at the Manhattan Institute, which is a a Coke-funded organization, right? This guy essentially manufactured the, the whole critical race theory scare and and the whole okay. uh, DEI scare out of thin air. Yeah. Like he is he's a a skilled right wing reactionary propagandist, and and he is sort of leading the attack on on not just higher education. I mean, I'm talking about you know 
elementary schools and stuff. All the book bands, same guy. Um, so yes, the, you know, colleges and universities um, have always been an ideological battle, right? Um, <laughs> and doesn't it always go back to Reagan? Right? It always goes back to Reagan. Sounds so, like, you know, it always, it, I, I don't know how true it is, but it definitely feels like whenever I've learned the history of anything, he's like the original cynic of our country, <laughs> in a way. And obviously, like, you should probably argue that it's slavery, but in some well, ways, in modern and, America, I mean, look, in, in, in recent history, like in the current era, yeah. right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not like Reagan is the original sin. Like Reagan uh, it, it was a very useful front man for. You know, big oil and gas, um, big well, you, finance, and like the evangelical right. You know, like I think all of us start with figures. He's a, he's more of a symptom of a movement than he was like the like deciding. Yeah. You know, I'm the president. Reagan spent his entire career selling capitalism as the greatest fucking thing in the world to people. Right? He was he was a pitch man. For for oh, yeah. GE and and like Chesterfield and everything, you know, back in the day, he was he was a front man. He was a, he was selling neoliberalism to the American public, right? But like, why college education? And like, one of his advisors back in the California days, Roger Freeman, gives away the game, saying, "quote We are in danger of producing an educated proletariat. That's dynamite." We have to be selective on who we allow to go to college. If not, we will have a large number of highly trained and unemployed people. That's what happened in Germany. I saw it happen. End quote. That's not what happened in Germany. But the the, 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 the <laughs> point about the educated proletariat is is the is the, is the kernel there because mm. Reagan was governor of California in the late sixties during the uh, the student movement, right? Um, Vietnam War protests, and a lot of those kids were in school for for free, right? We used to value higher education in this country and send kids to skate to uh, to state schools for little or no money, like investing into your future. Like citizens, can you fucking imagine? So the tools, the, the, you know, the conservatives and the ruling class used to attack higher education were budget cuts, right? You know, they stopped uh, funding um, schools at the state level. The government stopped giving away so many grants from Salah, quote, during Reagan's two terms as president, dedicated funding for outright grants and aid decreased federal guidelines pushed individual loans, and private bill collectors were brought in to ensure that the hardest kind of debt to escape was whatever you took on for your education, end quote. So, the class of 1984, you know, right smack in the middle of the Reagan era, that was the last college class to have uh, a higher percentage of grants than loans. So what I'm saying is Ronald Reagan invented student loans. It's infuriating. <laughs> and Awful. they invented student loans because they didn't want poor people to get educated and know what was going on in the world. And yeah, that's, they were that's always part of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you wind up getting is people paying more and more and more for uh, an education, you know, more out of pocket, more student loans, you pay even more for it down, you know, down the line. Uh, and, and, and the, uh, quality of the education decreases as neoliberalism creeps into the university and hollows things out, right? So at this point, like 75% of professors at universities are not on tenure track, right? And and half of classes are taught by uh, part-time adjuncts, right? Uh, according to William That's, A. I, Herbert, yeah, go ahead. I'll come back. This is really goal. shocking numbers. I mean, like, I would never have figured. I would never have thought that. Yeah, yeah, no, no. That, like, so the I'll 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 slip in a quote, and and 
a lot of these people like are making poverty wages. We're talking people with PhDs getting paid poverty wages. So uh, William Herbert, the executive director of the National Center for the Study of Collective Bargaining in Higher Education and the Professions, needs a catchier name for his organization, first yeah. of all. That's a lot. But he says, quote, Universities are relying more and more on non-tenure-track faculty and graduate assistants to conduct teaching and research. Between 2005 and 2015, for instance, graduate student employee growth was triple the rate of growth of tenure-track faculty. It means that there's no long-term obligation to retain someone. So people can either work semester to semester or year by year, but the university does not have to reappoint them. Like, it's the gig economy taking over college, right? Your professor is getting paid like an Uber driver and may actually have to be an Uber driver on the side to survive. <laughs> I was going to say. And, you know, we mentioned that, like, grad students are taking on uh, a lot of the... I mean, did you have a lot of TAs, you know, uh, teaching your classes when you were in school? I had a couple back in my oh, yeah. Um, almost like one for class, I, I remember. Yeah, right? So the, these grad students are also being exploited for their labor it's like, well, well you're you're you know you're getting paid in your education just like these athletes right while they're like teaching the classes and have to put together the syllabus and like you know great papers and every other damn thing <laughs> so yeah just like college athlete unionization you start to see uh hints toward grad studentization um according to wikipedia quote as of 2014 there were at least 33 u.s graduate employee unions 18 unrecognized unions in the United States. So, yeah, what's that, 50, 60? As of 2023, there were at least 156 U.S. graduate student employee unions. End quote. Um, the one here at IU, um, I don't know if they they did go on strike or they almost went on strike, but, you know, we they, they got an official union together and bargained for improved working conditions, right? That's the way it's supposed to work. I think the real crime, like, is that, you know, the, a, a college education is is becoming less meaningful, right? You know, you don't have yes. the top-tier um, professionals, you know, top-tier professors teaching classes anymore. You just have exploited, you know, grad students and adjuncts, right? Um, and, and, and you're paying for it with with money you don't have. And, and and I think it's like universities are selling the college experience more than the education, you know? Absolutely. I mean, like, I was at IPY my first year, and the reason why I transferred is that I decided that I wanted uh, the college experience. Uh, later, later debt in life began. Uh, you know, and, you know, I was glad. I, you know, I made the decision at, what, 19, 20 years old? <laughs> and I'm not sure if I regret it. I, I wouldn't say I regret it, but that still, that was a decision I made as somebody whose brain was not fully developed. And it's like kind of follows me still to this day, uh, debt wise. And, uh, gee, that sucks. Hey, ain't that America? Right? No, it's <laughs> like, it, it, it's, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not paying for your education. You're paying for like, um, a professional sports franchise slash, uh, nightclub. That also also yeah. features like guest speakers and uh, networking opportunities, right? And and there's a, a a participation trophy at the end that you have to have if you want to go anywhere in the world afterwards. Yeah, no, for a, a large number of the classes, there was nothing more prestigious about the classes I took at in Bloomington versus the ones I did in Indianapolis. Uh, they just were on campus. You know the the big IU campus. That was the big difference. Well, it wasn't like the quality of the classes. Like you, what am I saying? It's academics has become part of the overall experience, right? Uh, it, I found a, a, a here's here's a bit from the the Daily Beast quote. This shift empowers non-academic units, important ones such as athletics, as well as student resident life silos units and reduces academics to just one of many competing units. Academics now tend to be outnumbered and their voice diminished when critical decisions are being made, unquote. 
Right. So you think of the university as having like, you know, think of it, the university as a corporation and there's different divisions. Academics is just one division, right? Student life, you know, dorms and entertainment. You got to have the swankest food court. You got to have a fucking lazy river and, you know, a, a 10 meter high dive and, uh, you know, hot yoga, right? And, and, and athletics and, uh, you know, everything else, right? So yeah, the, 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 the education is, is competing with other interests. And, um, another quote from that same article, universities, professionalized operations in the last generation driven by trustees who bear fiduciary responsibility and often come from the corporate world, push to find efficiencies and maneuver in a quickly changing market. It is the complete commodification of higher education, right? Yeah. Um, Less of a public good. Exactly. Exactly. And and again, they're 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 selling the experience of college more than the education. Um, <laughs> to sell the experience, you need to bring in salespeople and people to ad ad administer. You know, a, a management class, right? So this is from Forbes, quote, between 1976 and 2018, full-time administrators and other professionals employed by those institutions increased by 164 and 452% respectively. Meanwhile, the number of full-time faculty employed at colleges and universities in the U.S. increased by only 92%, marginally outpacing student enrollment, which grew by 78%, end quote. Right. So why all of this explosion? Right. Uh, quote, there are several reasons, including greater student demand for services, the growing number of accreditors, government regulations, and the natural tendency for administrators to solve most problems with, you guessed it, more administrators. End quote. <laughs> right. They never want to look in the mirror. Right. It's, it's the principal Skinner meme. It's like. Well, why is why why is this university performing poorly? It can't be. I mean, all the we fired all the professor all the professors and won't let them speak their mind anymore. And you know, all of our classes are being taught by grad students who can't afford to eat. Like, why are our uh, alumni not excelling in the world? Um, we can't be the problem, can we? No. <laughs> It Being, must be the children, yeah. right? It's the children who are wrong. Yes. So you know, yes, we need we need to hire a consultant to come in and figure out why and pay them a half a million dollars to figure it out, right? That's how it works. That's that's neoliberalism in a nutshell, right? So you got the hollowing out of our institutions as 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 the disease that is big capitalism creeps inside and and eats everything right you might still have the sample gates out front you might still have the clock tower but you know the product inside it's not the same no those times yeah so just like we started at the beginning you know when 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 you you you, you watch the game and, and you just sort of i don't know you, you you shift your gaze just a couple degrees one way or another and you see the exploitation Right, yeah, you see the exploited athletes putting their bodies and their long-term health on the line for their multi-millionaire coaches, and uh, you know they're all of the uh, unnecessary administrators beneath them, right? While they while they don't see any financial gain from all the revenue they bring in, right? It, the students are exploited, you know, with their their tuition money paying for uh, a lesser quality education while they have a greater and greater student loan burden and the faculty are exploited too right you know you got a couple high paid professors and the rest are, are 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 adjuncts and grad students with no security it's almost as if like there should be some sort of like separation of like the brand of the university's like sporting like athletic department from the university itself i don't know how you would go about doing that if it's even like remotely feasible but like that only that also seems to be the only like close to like moral sense like like 
like thing you could do while also maintaining this giant like sporting apparatus. Like the like the athletic business would yeah be spun off and lease the facilities and the universities around yeah. for uh, an amount that would I don't know actually pay to make education better. That's 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 not, that's the idea. I don't have the idea. There's actually you can possibly do that, but uh, no, this is capitalism. Yeah, you know. I mean, we're, we're we're headed to a future where it's quite possible that the only programs that anyone cares about that are like half like idiot like real sense of money are are going to be like the top twenty or thirty programs, and the rest are just going to be kind of cut out to dry. Um, and maybe just some degree that it'll be better for everything, but it also is sad uh, that something, even though it's very imperfect, something we do love is going to be kind of destroyed by people whose interests are. Uh, very short term, and wouldn't even be around here in 20, 30 years. Uh, Substitute college sports for our planet. And I think you've nailed the conundrum that is late capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> ah, yeah. Hey, way to, way to bring this plane home on a positive note. Um, Alexis Scott, <laughs> thank you so much for once again joining the Who's Left podcast. You know, it's, it's fun to talk, talk trash stuff that we talk. Sports stuff. I, don't know. I can't wait to see what you have me on for next time. I'm I'm so excited. Uh, well, if, uh, this if is you a lot want of to fun. keep talking trans stuff, the Indiana State Legislature is gonna, you know, serve us a big heap. We can talk play. sports trans. We could do sport. Okay, crossover episode of sports trans. I'm sure. Oh, hey, ooh, to work hey you know that. what? Hey, Hello. I can effort. I hear. I hear he has thoughts. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for joining yeah, me. Great. That's it for this episode. If you're new here, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to sign up at scottaaronrogers.substack.com to receive my work directly to your inbox. Chip in at that paid level if you can and share with at least one other person. Until next time. Find me on your favorite social media platform at scottrodg78 and give me a holler there. This has been the Who's Left Podcast. I'm Scott Aaron Rogers. Love each other, Indiana. <laughs>